Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ugumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Israel's war economy is working for now. It's got healthy foreign reserves and modest debts. But the country has been here before, and it seems clear that the longer the campaign against Hamas lasts, the greater the pressure it will face. And at 86, author Jilly Cooper has had a long career of writing books that make people blush. They're both sexy and sexist. Her latest novel is out today. How will literary London take it? First up, though. Not so long ago, interest rates hovered near zero in the rich world and even turned negative in the eurozone. Economists argued about whether they were on a decades or centuries long downward trend. But now, that thinking has changed. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the US economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year above its longer run trend. So that's been a surprise. Driven largely by consumers. Last month, as the U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell spoke at the Economic Club of New York, the yield on 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds had just hit 5%. That's the highest it's been since the global financial crisis that began in 2007. And a worry because Treasury bonds, which are seen as one of the safest investments, usually have notoriously low returns. But they've consistently risen since the spring which could be a warning sign. Despite a recent fall in those yields, the long-term trend is stark, and experts have grown increasingly convinced that higher interest rates are here to stay. So despite a recent dip in bond yields, they're much higher than they were a couple of years ago and higher than they were earlier in the year. And this has happened because investors have fundamentally reassessed where the world economy is going. Henry Kerr is the economics editor for The Economist. And it's been seen in bond markets around the world with elongated bonds over the course of the year, pushing up towards 5% in the US, nearly as high as that in the UK, and at times approaching 3% in Germany, which doesn't sound high, but is for the Eurozone. And even Japan, which is the land of seemingly permanently low interest rates, has had upward pressure on its long-term bond yields too this year. 
And what does that upward pressure on bond yields mean for the economy? Well, several things. Bond yields reflect investors' expectations for where interest rates set by central banks are going. If those interest rates are expected to stay high, then the bond yield reflects that and rises. And of course, it means that anyone who is a borrower is paying more to borrow than they did before yields went up. That includes households who borrow to buy houses, it includes businesses who have to raise funds in financial markets to fund their investments, and of course it includes governments who themselves borrow from markets to pay for their deficits. And all those things are getting more expensive, and so all those borrowers are having to adjust to this new reality of higher rates. But the high interest rates don't seem to have hurt the overall economy much, so far at least not in America. How do you make sense of that, Henry? So there are two main things I'd point to. First is that the savings that households accumulated during the pandemic because of all the support schemes for household incomes, but also because they weren't going out and spending very much, those savings are not yet exhausted. So that supported consumer spending. And then the second thing is that during the pandemic, when rates were exceptionally low, there were a lot of people locking in those low rates by borrowing over a long time horizon. So in actual fact, as interest rates have gone up over the past two years, during that time, American corporations have actually benefited because the interest they pay out on their debts hasn't gone up that much, but the interest rate they get on their cash holdings has gone up. So essentially, the economy has been insulated somewhat from the effect of high rates. Okay, first, let's talk a bit more about those pandemic savings. How is that staving off recession? Well, it was thought that those protective saving buffers would be exhausted by about now, but the statistics on this recently got revised, and it appears that America's households are still sitting on about a trillion dollars of excess savings, which is equal to nearly 5% of overall personal income. So that's a really big buffer to support consumer spending, which then keeps the economy strong even as rates go up. And then there's the question about refinancing debt. How soon do you expect that to hurt the economy? Well, it already is the case that small businesses are suffering as a result of higher rates. And we've seen in both Europe and in the US, small business bankruptcies have gone up. For corporates, it's a bit more of a mixed picture. Only 16% of America's corporate debt matures over the next few years. But there is a lot more corporate debt out there because during the low rate era of the 2010s, corporations exploited low interest rates by borrowing more. They retired equity and they issued debt. They levered up. And if we are in a world where high interest rates persist, then eventually that debt is going to roll over onto higher rates. So it will be a gradual drag on corporate balance sheets over the next few years if rates don't come down. And how long might interest rates stay high for? And looking beyond companies, what might that mean for those who own homes or who are looking to buy homes? So it depends what you mean by high. It's still quite possible that interest rates get cut in 2024, certainly in 2025. Investors do still expect that, but it's about where they end up when interest rates started rising Investors expected they'd come back down quite a long way. Now, the level at which they are going to settle, if investors are right, is substantially higher. So you might get some cuts, but they won't be anything like the size of the increases that have happened. And that's why you have 10-year bond yields in America. 
at four and a half and earlier in the year close to five percent because markets are expecting interest rates to persist. So when thinking about mortgage interest rates and the effects on households, well, not long ago, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate in America crossed 8% for the first time since 2000. And that's really high. It means that the median American home with a mortgage worth 90% of the home's value would now cost about 60% of average earnings in monthly mortgage payments, which is an almost doubling from July 2021. And so even though the US housing market has proved pretty robust to high rates so far, at least in terms of house prices, basically what's happened is that transactions have dried up. It's really hard to see how mortgage interest rates could stay high without there being a long-term drag on house prices. Okay, so we've talked about the impact that these higher rates might have on companies and on consumers, homeowners. But are those the biggest liabilities that the American economy is facing? Well, a potentially more acute one is in America's banking system. Banks ran into trouble in the spring, you'll recall, when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and it was followed by First Republic because higher bond yields had blown a hole in those banks' balance sheets and the Federal Reserve had to enter the market and provide emergency loans to lots of banks under a new lending program. So it's certainly the case that high bond yields do create a problem for America's banks that so far has only really been postponed. Henry, it's not the most optimistic picture, really. Are you trying to tell me that we're heading for global economic disaster? Well, I definitely wouldn't put it in those strong terms. What I'd say is that the economy is going to face a period of tough adjustment to higher rates if they do endure. And then the other thing to say is that it matters a lot why interest rates are rising. And there is a potential good news story here, which is that interest rates are fundamentally related to the strength of the economy. And of course, one of the things that's happened this year is there's been a surge of optimism about the potential for generative artificial intelligence to increase productivity in the world economy. And if it is the case that we get stronger economic growth and stronger productivity growth alongside the higher interest rates, then yes, everybody has to pay more to borrow, but they also have more income with which to service those debts. So that's the good news explanation, if you like, for why interest rates might be higher. Alas, there is an alternative explanation, which is that rates are higher simply because there's more competition for capital. And in particular, government debt has grown a lot and has therefore been sopping up even more of the world's savings. And that leaves less for the private sector to compete over for investment. And that's what economists call crowding out. Then you are in a more painful world in which interest rates have gone up, but your income hasn't. But the thing is that if higher interest rates do push the world's economies into recession, then that will ultimately lead central banks to cut interest rates. And you end up in a world where higher interest rates bring about their own downfall. And indeed, Over the past couple of weeks where bond yields have fallen back in response to a slight weakening of the economic data, there are signs that maybe, perhaps, that process has in fact begun. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Ori. How do you feel about going to space? 
I feel like I don't need to go out there personally, but I really admire everyone who does. You know, yay for exploration. In yesterday's episode of Babbage, which you can listen to if you subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus, our science and technology editor weighs in on Europe's ambitions to become a more autonomous player in the space race. Turns out it won't be an easy feat. Have a listen and find out. And remember that if you subscribe to our print and digital editions, you already have access to our weekly feature shows. All you have to do is link your account using the instructions in our show notes or listen in our handy app. Boom. So simple. Okay, now back to Earth. Jerusalem, a holy city for all three Abrahamic religions, normally has streets bursting with tourists and locals alike. But these days, in the midst of recent conflict, it's been a ghost town with more police officers in the streets than civilians. Stores are shuttered, restaurants mostly closed. It's just one of many signs of how the war with Hamas has been affecting Israel's economy. Firms from builders to restaurants have closed and they've stayed closed since Hamas's attack. Tourism, which is one of Israel's main businesses aside from technology, has also absolutely screeched to a halt and entire towns across the border with Gaza and Lebanon have been cleared out, putting a stop to all the economic activity that used to go on in them. Carrie and Richmond Jones is an international economics correspondent for The Economist. And on top of that, 360,000 army reservists have been called up. That leaves 360,000 empty jobs back in Israel. So we can kind of already see the impact of the war on Israel's economy. Absolutely. It's enough of an impact for the central bank to cut its growth forecast for the year from 3% to 2.3%. And that's bad. And not just for the immediate impact on the economy, actually. The second really big problem for Israel's policymakers is that the economy also matters for the war effort. An army is only as strong as the economy that is paying for it. And that's why Israel's economic policymakers in the finance ministry and the central bank have both already started planning. So what are they up against? What are the issues when trying to plan for whatever's going to happen here? The biggest problem is just that there aren't enough workers to support both the economy and the war. As we said, 360,000 reservists, that's about 8% of the country's workforce, have been mobilised. It's a bigger call-up than in 1973, which was the Yom Kippur War. And that war actually pushed Israel to the brink of financial ruin. There's another problem, or a deeper problem really, which is that A lot of these workers worked in tech, which is Israel's most productive industry. By contrast, very, very few of them are from the Orthodox community, which is a less productive sector of Israel's society. There's another source of labour shortages as well, and that's Palestinians. For years, many of Israel's low-skilled jobs have been done by workers from the West Bank. There's about 200,000 currently who cross the border into Israel or some of its settlements every day. But the West Bank is now in complete turmoil. We've seen people be killed from protests, settler violence, and very few workers are crossing the border. There's also some reports that Israel isn't letting many cross the border. They may begin to strike, which can make the problem even worse. So the long and short of it is that Israel has a massive labour supply problem. And it's been made worse by the fact that before the war, there still weren't any spare workers in Israel. Israel has an incredibly tight labour market and has for most of this year and last year. The central bank has spent much of this year pulling up interest rates in order to try and cool the labour market down. And it's failed. Now Israel's policymakers just have no idea where they're going to find the workers that they need. 
Is that kind of the long and the short of it then, that the Israeli war economy really hinges on on labor issues? That's for sure the biggest problem. There are other issues which the central bank is working to address. So there was a modest panic in markets on October 7th when Hamas's attack first happened. The shekel has sunk to its lowest value against the dollar in more than a decade in these last three weeks, although it's doing a bit better now. Israel's central bank has tools to attack that. It's sold $30 billion of foreign exchange reserves, and it has another cushion of about $170 billion. So the danger doesn't look quite as big on that front. The price of insuring the country's debt against default has rocketed, but luckily there's not much of it. Another problem, private consumption has taken a massive hit. Think about all those empty villages and also paying the bill for the war, for moving those empty villages to hotels, for handing out stipends to companies as Western governments did in coronavirus, or even paying the bill for all those reservists and their salaries and their families. That's all going to be really expensive. So these are all problems, but they're smaller than the labour supply problem. Right. And what does it all add up to? We've spoken on the show before about how this conflict will ultimately impact the economy in Gaza. What about the Israeli side? What's the long-term impact you expect for this? It's quite tricky to tell. Since Hamas took control of the Strip, there have been three clashes between its forces and Israel. In each case, there was a little bit of damage done to the economy, about a few billions worth of shekels. That's a tiny portion of GDP. But the scale of Hamas's attacks on October 7th and the scale of Israel's ensuing response is pushing economists to the history books. It just seems way off the charts compared to anything that's happened in the last 20 years. And it's pushing people towards the Yom Kippur War, the war in 1973. At that time, the cost of weapons and drafting about 200,000 army reservists brought Israel to the brink of financial collapse. It almost defaulted on its debt. So history might be a pretty bad guide this time around because so much just depends on how much Israel's current population is willing to withstand in terms of economic pain. So what are the factors you think this time around that will affect just how much the Israeli economy is ultimately hit? The economy is in good enough shape that for the next few months, the impact won't be too drastic. So as we said, the central bank has $170 billion left in foreign exchange reserves. That means that the shekel shouldn't tank too much. Its debt is currently around 60% of GDP. That's a very, very small debt pile for such a rich country. And even an enormous increase in defence spending, like the one that's been promised, and everything that's going to be needed to finance the invasion and handouts to the economy. The central bank reckons that By the end of the year, the debt-to-GDP ratio is probably only going to have increased by 2 or 3%. But the country's economy had been on the rocks before Hamas's attack. Now the cost of borrowing is already rising, the tax base is crumbling, a longer war means more destruction, and reconstruction is not going to come cheap. And to get more workers, or make sure that there's someone to fill the jobs most important to the war effort if it continues for a long time, maybe months or even a year... Israel would have to resort to much more drastic measures. Think of the kind of stuff that the Allies did in World War II. Rationing, putting people into specific jobs. It's unlikely to come to that. But that will be little consolation for the costs that Israelis are forced to bear this time around. Kerryon, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> Jilly Cooper novels are smutty and sexist and snobbish. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. They have titles such as Mount and Score and The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous, and they're generally not easily mistaken for the collected works of Jane Austen. Her cast lists feature characters such as Rupert Campbell Black, who we learn is Nirvana for most women. First of May, first of May, outdoor f- starts today. You get Bethany, who is apparently a nymphomaniac, and Cadbury, who is a Labrador. Her novels contain far too many appearances of the word wet and a frankly distressing number of thrusts. They are, in short, reprehensible in almost every way. In other words, great fun. And they also say something about how Britain has changed during Miss Cooper's decades-long career. Jilly Cooper's new novel comes out today, and its release will be a peculiar publishing event. Everything from this book's nudging title, it's called Tackle, to its cover, which features more tackle, perhaps even tackle, in shorts, suggests that this is the kind of book that literary London would get sniffy about. But in fact, literary London almost certainly will not. Miss Cooper has published 17 novels and sold over 11 million copies in Britain alone. Jilly Cooper has less readers than religious believers, and her followers range from the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. They're good. They are good. They They're are good. Esca- Look, you, need, you need to have escapism in your life. To Cambridge Dons, one of whom wrote that she was precise, insightful and witty. If you look at Ms. Cooper's work, and particularly if you look at the earlier works in the canon, they are not what one would call woke, and they are certainly not feminist. So feminists do appear in her pages. They can usually be spotted because they have hairy legs and a fondness for the new statesman. There's a line in one early Cooper novel when a boy asks his father who Florence Nightingale was, and the father answers, a lesbian. But then, if Miss Cooper is out of touch, that's hardly surprising. She is 86, and, like most people who live so long, is anachronism incarnate. She's a living reminder that social and sexual changes, which seem prehistoric to younger minds, are in fact pretty recent. It was, for example, only in 1975, the year in which her first novel, Emily, was published, that British women were finally allowed to open bank accounts without a male signatory. Openly admitting to reading Jilly Cooper causes some people to raise eyebrows because it seems akin to openly admitting an enthusiasm for porn. And it's not wholly unreasonable to think that her novels might be full of sex. Her books were among a group of novels that led to the introduction of the term bonkbuster into the Oxford English Dictionary in 2002. Without a doubt, there are lashings of sex in them. At times, there are admittedly even lashes. But the idea that they're pornographic is simply wrong. The real pornography here is social, not sexual. Her books are filled with sweeping lawns, with avenues of lime trees, with puce-faced kernels, and above all, they're full of handsome, upper-middle-class Englishmen. Her hero, Rupert Campbell Black, is said to be based partly on Andrew Parker Bowles, who was the current Queen's first husband. And her books linger lovingly over cads as they drink and smoke and swear, 
and fondle fat Labradors and slender women in stone-flagged Cotswold kitchens. There are plots in Jilly Cooper's books. There's stuff about horses and football and horse jumping, and some characters talk far too much about bridles. And there are some flaws as well. The recent novels are more sprawling and arguably less sharp. But to be honest, that barely matters. Miss Cooper has created not merely stories, but a world. Just like Dickens's London, or the Brontes' Yorkshire, or Jane Austen's Blankshire, Cooper's Rutshire is a place you know the moment you open the page. It's a place where people have clipped accents and rambling houses and Labradors. And most important of all, fun. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. How have you been loving our new content? Drop us a line at podcast at economist.com. And if you're not yet a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, you're really missing out. Get your first month on us by following the link in our show notes. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.